This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. Welcome to the Secure Podcast, Building a Financially Resilient Workforce. My name is Charles Ladmer. Today, I'm going to be hosting Danielle Poza. She is amazing. Sat in a panel discussion with her last week at the HR Transform Conference. She's the founder of Workplace Wellbeing Advisors and the vice chair of Global Wellness Institute's Workplace Wellbeing Initiative and frequent collaborator with Deepak Chopra. She's amazing, and I can't wait for the conversation. So, Danielle, uh, kick us off, please. You know, unpack your amazing history. I started my uh, official career at Gallup. I, I studied uh, international business and marketing in college. Um, I always had a passion for business and entrepreneurship, but then at the same time, was also always passionate about like philosophy and understanding people and human behavior and human psychology and things like that. Um, and was into like self development and and that sort of thing. So. Um, uh, Gallup was my first like real job out of college. It was actually the only company I, I, um, uh, I applied for, but I was a management consultant there for like four years. And then, um, and it was kind of the perfect marriage of like, you know, understanding people in business. So, so I, I, that's why, you know, I, I loved, you know, that, that job, but I started my career there, um, left to then start my own business. I've been doing kind of all kinds of consulting for the past 10 to 12 years. Over that time period, I've uh, worked very closely with Deepak Chopra. Um, I actually met him through Gallup, but he and I have actually uh, taught a handful of times together, co-created our, our own kind of courses. And um, and now in my consulting work, I focus exclusively on workplace well-being because I've always been passionate about not wellness, but well-being, the things that really contribute to a quality life. And and um, and so that's what I do now. I work with companies to like help them with their strategies, you know, to, to really make well-being a part of the culture. So a real well-being strategy. When did you start a- your work on well-being and what sort of initially attracted you in, into that space? Um, I, well, it, it was always, you know, it, like when I think of well-being, I guess this is a good place to start just kind of defining it. So to me, well-being is really synonymous with, you know, living a fulfilling life, you know, living a high quality of a life, a, a life of like real quality. Right. Um, and so, so by that definition, I've, I've basically been interested in it my whole life. I had cancer as a kid. Um, I was always pretty like deep. I always was kind of asking the bigger questions, always wanted to like learn more about myself and my purpose and things like that. So, um, always loved philosophy, took some philosophy classes in college and stuff. Um, so, so in the broader sense of the word, I was always interested in like, what really, what really enables us to live a live like that fulfilling life. But um, the the uh, light bulb kind of went off for me to focus on this when I was at Gallup because I was there when Gallup published um, the book Wellbeing: The Five Essential Elements, and that book was really and still is the largest global study ever done on um, on well being. And, yeah, and for, when, for our listeners, would you mind unpacking those five elements? 
Yeah, sure. So when the research came out and this was done, this was done in, in 2010 and it was done in like over 150 countries. And the big question behind that study was what, what makes life worthwhile, which like is such a great question. Right. Um, and they wanted to see like, Oh, is this common? You know, is there some commonality across all, all countries that like transcends different cultures and, and the answer was yes. And so there are these, these five, five elements, which they've been kind of re-termed now, but they were career well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, physical well-being, and community well-being. But the thing is, when people hear those terms, it sounds like everything else we hear. And there's a million like well-being like wheels or wheels of life with like different categories. But it was the research behind each of those that was so fascinating and you know what really contributed what enabled you to thrive in each of those areas like it really kind of gave you this this like criteria for living a living a great life and for me that was when the light bulb went off because I said like to me that like I was like this is the future if 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 you can measure this properly which is what Gallup started doing then if you can measure well-being properly and you can tie it to the metrics that everybody cares about you know, in a, in a, in a company, whether that's productivity and retention numbers and healthcare costs, or in a city where, you know, you've, you've got more economic like factors or a country, then if you can make the case for move the needle on well-being and all the other kind of performance metrics also move in a positive direction. I, I just felt like that was really, that was really the, the, the future because you can't just have progress for progress sake. You need to also have people's lives get better. So that was, to answer your question, that was kind of like when I really decided to focus on this stuff because I just felt like it was so important for the future. It sort of reminds me of some of those uh, seminal studies that were done, the, the globe, globe studies done at the University of Pennsylvania around um, contextual, culturally contextualizing leadership. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious what, what sort of insights uh, were unearthed in, in the Gallup studies in terms of culturally contextualizing well-being and, and how that sort of is also tied to sort of financial and material stability, because that, that's obviously, I think, uh, can, can be con culturally contextualism. It's complex because in one way, the same principles apply to everybody, but it's also it's also up to the person to interpret like certain things. So like, for example, um, it's important for everybody to um, perceive that their life is going well and that it's getting better. Perceive. Now they, you could have two people with two extremely different circumstances to your point, right? You could have, you could have a well-off person in the United States and you can have somebody in, you know, the middle of Costa Rica, maybe living in a small community or even say El Salvador, because actually those are some of the populations that do have higher well-being, who doesn't, you know, have very much money. And yet that person's perception of their life is higher than that kind of rich person in the States, right? So there's something called life evaluation, which is a, a key part of measuring well-being basically in any global you and I know about the human flourishing index and things like that. That's always a key part of understanding well-being, right? You have to, 
you know, when it comes, when it comes down to well-being, it kind of, it, there falls into two categories, how you perceive your life and how your life is actually like how you're actually experiencing it. Like, so if you think about it, it's almost like your circumstances and your perception of those circumstances, right? Make up, make up well-being. So the, the category of life evaluation is something that matters in all countries and the different categories of financial well-being, physical well-being, those like criteria, they're pretty much all the same across, across cultures, but everyone's kind of experience, you know, of those questions or how, like, you know, their mindset or their perception of their circumstances is different. So it's like, it's a little, it's a little it's a little complex. I don't know. If it's I, 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 I think that's a very powerful uh, distinction where one's perception re- really drives one's relationship to well-being. And I, I think that's really important. So I, I think there's actually this interesting bridge between we've had this discussion before uh, regarding the Gallup studies and the sort of evolution into the Harvard's human flourishing work that they've done with Gallup in, in relationship with Gallup. Uh, it seems like uh, talk to me a little bit about financial stability in some of those earlier models, and then financial stability as it's evolved into human flourishing. So, like, so Gallup kind of created this baseline for measuring and understanding well-being around the world. And from from what I know, with the human flourishing, with what Harvard's doing in that in- index, and that's with Gallup, they're doing more of a deep dive into particular countries and kind of expanding on these different elements of well-being and taking it a step further. And they're also asking more questions in the spiritual domain. In terms of the financial, um, I mean, what one one thing first of all to know, I think about you know financial well-being has was originally number so number three out of the five categories. And what was interesting about that was that first of all, it's not number one work. Your your career well being or your work is the single biggest influencer on your overall quality of life. Financial- that for me, I'm curious why 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 work is is the primary factor. I think yeah. that will surprise a lot of gainly uh, a lot of the audience. That's sort of- yeah. I I have like a I I usually like kind of create have like healthy debates like with my clients and like put the five up to see what what they would choose and what do they you know what do they think comes out on top and and you know we're talking about what it takes to live a thriving life here not just like what it takes to survive meaning like so so you can have a decent decent job but it's it's when you when your work when you really are engaged in your work that leads to like a great life but it, the reason why it comes out on the top of those five is because your work is so part of your identity, right? Like it's where you get your sense of self. It's where you get your, your, your self-worth, even like from a financial standpoint, right? Your money is tied to that, but it's the sense of identity. That's the key part of it. Like if you really love what you do, you take, you know, you take pride in who you are on a daily basis. You're excited about the work that you're doing on a daily basis. You're like, you're naturally passionate. And then, and then that has an impact on all the other areas of life. But then the other piece is that it just is where we spend the most of our time, especially nowadays, right? Where people are not having a typical like eight hour work day. It's bleeding into all areas of your life. So if you like what you do, that can, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And sometimes people really don't mind like, you know, working extra hours when they really love what they do. 
if you don't, it can quickly erode your life because that's such a big portion, you know? So Dude, have you seen any difference in the data um, pre and post pandemic? Cause it seems like work-life blend has evolved post pandemic as being, you know, a central part of the conversations. It's certainly, certainly in the HR domain where all of a sudden hi- hybrid working has, you know, has really transformed. I think the employee employer contract, the social contract, there. Yeah. So I'm just curious if you've seen that in the data in any material way. It doesn't change in terms of the level of influence it has on our lives or the level of importance at, or its ability to have a positive influence. I think what's happened though, it will, and, and you know, what you can see in the data though is like, well, how many people you know, are still really engaged in their, in their work as a result to now like be working from, from home and the engagement numbers, you know, are not, not increasing by any means. Like, you know, a lot of the thriving numbers, how people are feeling about their lives or their, their, the level of like sadness and negative emotions that they're feeling is real, has really dipped a lot from, and, and, you know, they think maybe it is because people are home and a lot of people do kind of experience a sense of loneliness like due due to that. So so work although there has been a bit of this shift of like well work shouldn't be so important and that's right we should set boundaries on work because we have gotten too far as a society where we're we're just like working too much even if we like that work it has become too dominant. But it's not it is still, you know, it's still really important. Like it's, it's still, it still really should be kind of the central factor of our lives, but as long as it's a positive one, like I said before, the problem is that once it becomes something that's so extreme where we're spending all these extra hours, if you don't like that, that is like worse for your well-being, your stress levels, your physical health. It erodes your relationships in your life, right? You, you don't take you don't take care of yourself, your family, your spouse. So, so when you know you do not, you are not engaged or thriving in work. It has an extreme negative effect. When you are engaged, it has a really you know like really positive effect. So, and I, I think that you know I actually answer your question. Or no, you did. No, you did because I more of that. <laughs> And, and I, it, no, it comes back to your earlier conversations, re, you know, regarding your your educational experiences with philosophy and 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 this whole idea that, you know, post industrial revolution, you know, we ushered in a time period for humanity where our purpose was sort of inextricably bound to what we do, our work, you know, that became a you know core part of our identity, and and I, I think that you know we're, we're transforming right now. But I, I think that there's there, there are a couple of pieces here, and I want to come back to something you said earlier because I think that it's a really important distinction. There, there are differences between financial security and financial thriving, yeah, yeah. and and there is literally a third of the workforce this year that's going to have a social determinants of health crisis event, meaning you know basically uh, having challenges with um, being hungry, you know, food security, transportation mm-hmm. security, housing security. Yeah, and and yeah. so you're not closing the gap on that sort of just financial security standpoint. So I'm, I'm I'm curious what happens in terms of when you look at an overall workplace environment, how you treat financial security and financial thriving differently when you look out across that entire ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so 
So yeah, I love the distinction between financial uh, stability and to be financially thriving. Because kind of going back to what we said before, you you can be financially secure without being financially thriving. What that means is that, again, you might have somebody who has no problem paying the bills, in fact, has more than enough money than they know what to do with, and is not necessarily thriving because of the way they're spending that money might not be in ways that actually improve their well-being or, quote unquote, like buy happiness. So, um, so I guess there's two parts to this question. So first of all, like, so financial security, you know, has to do with like having, you know, having enough money to pay the bills and to kind of live the type of life that you want, like com comfortably without having it, you know, without being stressed out about, about money, having your money, you know, being on auto, having everything set up automatically. So money is not on your mind. And that's, that's kind of, you know, that falls in the domain of, of security. And, and in a, in a workplace, it's making sure people really are paid, you know, paid a, a, a livable wage and, and that people feel that, that they're being paid fairly, but financial, financial, th to be financially thriving, there's all of this research. That's really fascinating. I don't know, you know, if you've heard of the book, happy money, cause I know that you're in more space. Have you, it's so fascinating because it really goes into all the ways that you can really like buy your happiness. And this is things like, so, you know, it makes such a big difference when you spend your money on other people. Um, mm -hmm. When you give your money back, when you um, spend money on experiences, like that's, that's a, that's a huge one. Then there's even, then, you, you know, you can go way further than that to, you know, like you kind of break things down even more. Like if you spend your money where like if you if you buy something in the future, say an all expense paid vacation, like an all inclusive or something, then by the time you get to that experience, it feels like it's free. So you can actually enjoy that experience so much more because it was paid for, you know, so, so long ago. So when you create distance between when you have an experience and when you paid for it, you can actually derive more happiness from that experience. So I say this because there's kind of a whole world of financial well-being that we never really talk about that comes down to more like, how do I make my money serve me and the others around me and help me have more, you know, and it doesn't have to be big experiences like a vacation, but like instead of maybe buying my daughter a stuffed animal, which she's got, you know... <laughs> like hundreds of at this point, why don't I take her out for ice cream? Or why don't I do something with her that, you know, builds that, you know, builds that, that bond or, you know, so, so where that I think then impacts companies and employers is that there's a, there's, you know, first of all, a lot of, a lot of companies are not offering more than the basics from a financial standpoint, the 401k, you know, the 401ks and, and, and they're not going beyond to say, you know, what else is available or how can we really educate people? I think you and I know that there's like, you know, quite a, a huge amount of people who are financially illiterate, like just not knowing the basic. So, so given that you're focused on thriving and, and 
going to that highest level of order in terms of human experience of flourishing. And you're working with workforce populations where literally one third of the workforce is going to have a social determinants of health crisis this coming year and be 100% in their reptilian brain shut down. How do you how do you manage that? How do you work with companies to reconcile the fact that there, there's a part of the population that's so, such a critical, vulnerable state that it's really difficult, if not impossible, for them to think about a life that's yeah. flourishing? How, how do you approach that? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that that's where it gets complex, where it's really a matter of breaking down the organization into smaller groups and understanding what's going on in the lives of each individual person, you know? I mean, so like in the in a perfect world, a manager takes the time to understand, you know, the people who are working for them, right? Really takes the time to build relationships and ask questions about what's going on in their lives, knowing that if I understand the challenges in this person's life, I understand what they're kind of coming to work with every day, that I can build trust with that person and I can potentially help with certain things that like are, are in my control. I think the, the, it becomes way more challenging when an organization is trying to solve these things at the, like at the 50,000 foot level, rather than really training and supporting managers to be in tune with their people. Because on, on any given team, to your point, there might be one person that's really struggling, maybe ha is has a um, is diagnosed with a you know some form of mental ill health, whereas another person is totally thriving. And unless you're measuring it properly, and unless you're in tune with your people, you really can't come up with you know can't come up with a solution. But so I don't, my answer to that is just like you know just measuring well-being properly at the organizational level, and then empowering managers to have individual and local level, like, you know, conversations. So, um, can, can, can you help, um, me and our audience understand your approach to that measurement strategy? I mean, that one, look at the overall workforce. How, how do you measure that? And then how, how do you measure success over time? Yeah, sure. So I, I always say that there's, um, you know, so first of all, there's, it's, it's hard these days to find like a really good, um, tool mostly because there's like so many of them. Um, I often, you know, kind of lean on Gallup's approach and, and Gallup's tool for a lot of reasons, but I always like kind of advise organizations that there's like three, there's three kind of core categories you want to measure. And then there's kind of how you measure that's important. So like, first of all, when you're measuring well-being within an organization, you want to make sure you have foundation of engagement items, you know, that there's, there's kind of the key things that drive your ability to thrive at work, you're, you know, are you using, are you able to use your strengths in your daily work? Do you enjoy the nature of, of the work that you do on a daily basis? Do you get us, you feel a sense of meaning and purpose in what you do, or do you see how it ties to the mission of the company? There's a series of things that are, that are pretty, pretty well known now that really drive employee engagement, but engagement is a foundation to well being. You, you've got to be thriving at work in order to for, for you to thrive overall in life. That's a key piece of it. So employee engagement is kind of one kind of, you know, set of questions that need to be part of that, that measurement. The other is 
end result well-being, meaning is there is there a series of questions that touch on the different areas of well-being that you and I have you know talked about before? Are you asking a broader set of questions that that you know check in with where how employees are doing mentally, socially, in terms of their relationships, you know, financially and physically, and making sure you're touching on well-being, so you get a sense of what is that kind of state of mental, physical, emotional health within an organization. The third category, which I think is, you know, probably the most, well, I don't want to say the most important, but it's important in terms of like an organization's ability to like drive and affect change and improve engagement and well-being. And that's kind of the culture of well-being. So is there a set of questions where you're asking about burnout, about whether or not your employees feel that the organization cares about your well-being? You know, are you asking questions that that get at the drivers of burnout, which are things like, you know, uh, whether or not you're treated fairly, if your hours are too long, if your job demands are too high, if you are being micromanaged. Those are those are kind of the the questions that tell you where is the workplace and the work environment responsible for people's well-being. How is that workplace influencing an individual's ability to thrive and that's that's always to me where organizations have to start is kind of in that in that you know that domain but then the second piece of like measuring properly is that you've got to see the whole organization and draw conclusions about maybe what you need to do to your overall kind of policies and perks and things like that or but then you have to see how does well-being shake out all the way down, you know, to the local level. Can you look at each individual team and see then what's happening on each team? Because, you know, every team is different. Every team is being kind of influenced by that manager so much so that it's like, even if the company's doing everything under the sun to give employees the best perks and benefits and if that if something's going on with that manager, it all stops. You know, none of that makes a difference. So a lot of the measurement piece has to do with not asking the right questions, not over asking questions, and then making sure that you're not just getting an engagement score for your organization, but then looking at what is actually happening on a team by team basis, and then empowering the managers to do something with that information. Because the vast majority of the managers that I talk to and the organizations we work with uh, don't have incentives and motivations on the manager level to empower their teams with wellness, you know, and, and that's, so it's well, all about, I think it's all and, like and that people kind of, train. there's like very little people training. It's really more about just like skills to do the job and getting things done. You know, it's just like this kind of getting things done culture rather than a, invest in people and relationships culture. And, and that's, I think, kind of the problem of corporate culture these days overall, but. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, corporate cultures are driven off that sort of quarterly earnings and very bottom line driven and, and there, but I do see a mind yeah, shift, sure. a mindset shift in, in the American workplace with ESG and all of that. So how does that robust strategy come to life and who's doing it well? I mean, do you have organizations that you point to and say, wow, they're really just, they're, they're hitting all of the high notes. They, they've got KPIs at the highest level of the organization and, and that arrives down 
on the management level. It's a part of the culture. It's a, it, you know, wellness is literally integrated in every part of the fabric of the organization. Yeah. Who's doing it well? Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, one of my clients in their name because they, they don't, they wouldn't mind is, is Panera. And, um, and, you know, I work closely with the chief people officer there and she's, she's just so great. Like she's, she just totally gets this stuff and she's, you know, really embedding it in different parts of the parts of the culture. Um, you know, but I know that that's like very much like a, a work in work in progress because it's, it's challenging, especially when you have, when you have, you know, part-time employees and full-time employees, employees out in the field and corporate employees, it's like a whole other dynamic. I feel like one of the you know, so I could say some of the things that they're doing specifically, but, you know, one of, I think one of the best companies that I ever kind of read about studied is, was, uh, Patagonia. Um, because, you know, there's, there's, there's the organizations that are making strides and really embedding and doing kind of the right things to get into the culture. But there was something about, and I know because I've had people work with them and, 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 um, and, and be in their corporate offices that like, there's actually a completely different vibe and feeling when you're in there. There's a, there's, you feel something different in terms of when you interact, you know, with the employees. I mean, in that culture, they were, they were encouraged to like leave the office, go hit the slopes, you know, <laughs> go spend time in nature, go hike, go do those things. And that was like, that was like felt and seen throughout the organization. And, and to me, that's the difference between, companies that are just trying to do it and just do it right versus it really, really emanating from leadership in the way that they communicate and in their own principles and in the way that they're living and in their values and their own life. Um, so I kind of feel like they're, you know, they're a company I'd put up there as like kind of like a, like a North star for, for an organization that's doing, doing it right. I recently read the founder's uh, statement on the difference between going public and where he wanted Patagonia to really? go purpose. And it's really Wait, powerful. Say that again. It, it, so he, he called it like going public as opposed to Patago Patagonia going oh, wow. purpose. And I think it's, yeah, it's a really powerful statement. What did he? Yeah, yeah I, I'll, I'll send it over your way. Yeah, it's in. in Posted here. Yeah, well, it's like that, you know, that, um, you know, that's why, like, I, I do try to say, like, workplace well-being is a mentality and it's a, you know, like real work to me, real workplace well-being is a is a mentality and it's a leadership style. And, you know, like my work that I do, like, wouldn't wouldn't work with the wrong people because it's like you have to have a genuine commitment. You have to kind of like genuinely get this stuff and really care about it and see how it's, you know, it all leads to business results and everything, but you have to kind of just be doing it for the right reasons beyond, you know, you have to just do it because it's right for people beyond the fact that it's like, it's good, good, good for business. You know, that's got to be the driving factor, you know, and I feel like, like organizations like Patagonia had really, really had that. Um, so. So beyond the sort of right thing to do, which is certainly the, the probably the right starting place, uh, why is it important for HR leaders to measure wellness? What what are they going to get out of it, and how does that empower them inside of the organization? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you want to be able to, you want to be able to measure it, measure it the right way with the questions that you know are linked to business outcomes, right? So that way when you're measuring well-being and you have an actual like well-being score for the organization, you can say, oh, well, when we increased well-being by five points this year, we saw a reduction in, in retention or whatever KPIs like man, you know, matter for your organization. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, improving like well-being is absolutely everything from, you know, from retention, productivity, I mean, issues with like safety incidences, um, shrinkage, basically it can, it, it can get linked to everything, but but I mean, why else? Because I mean, it's the future. It's what it's what not just millennials want. It's not just oh, millennials want work life balance and they want a sense of purpose. But we've seen from research from Deloitte that that you know the C suite is looking for work life balance. There they've been leaving jobs because their well being is suffering. You know, like it, everybody reevaluated their their lives with COVID. They started to rethink what? Why am I? working myself to death. What am I doing this for? They got a sense of what it's like to be home with their kids. They realize, you know, I've had, I've had clients where it's like the, the men especially are saying like, I don't want to go back to, I, I realize I've been missing the lives of my children and didn't realize it until I was actually home seeing what the day in and day out looks like. So it's, I'd say first and foremost, it's a here, you know, it's a trend that's, that's absolutely, here to stay and that you have to really under, understand it. And I think it does elevate, it does elevate their, their, their position in the sense that it's so important to the future of work that that is why we're seeing like how like, you know, HR is, has that, has, has a, a whole new level of like power in today's world. But I never recommend that this should be an HR thing. <laughs> Like in with with my clients, HR is always involved, but it is not driven by HR. Like I very quickly want to get the buy in from across leadership so that they see that the CEO has to be talking about these things the right way, that every, you know, head of whatever every division department needs to be invested in this conversation and be involved in some way, because like if you're a head of training and development that plays a really key role in making well-being come to life like the CFO and people's you know financial well-being as you know is like plays a huge role in people's ability to come to work like feeling empowered every day so it is not a HR thing and HR has more than enough to do they are often not not experts in in you know, changing culture or experts in employee engagement. Some are, you know, some have got, but it's not a, um, it also, it's not something that I like, you know, that I really feel like should be falling into HR's lap because God knows they've had enough to do, especially, you know, during COVID and after. So. <laughs> right. You, you mentioned a, a few things that I, I think are worth sort of exploring further, which are one, the kind of trend of financial wellness, the role of the CEO and the mm -hmm. CFO, as that being very important in terms of establishing an organizational culture around yeah. wellness. What I'm so fascinated by is that you've seen the entire growth of the industry and you're really part of a team at Gallup that did that seminal research on well-being mm -hmm. and really established as that as a, 
as a body of research work, but that and then that transformed how organizations looked at mm -hmm. well-being. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of measurement of well-being over mm -hmm. time and how over time that's shifted the lens or maybe opened up the lens of wellness beyond just HR into the deeper yeah, parts of yeah, the Yeah, yeah, sure. I love that question. So, um, so yeah, so the Gallup research on well-being came out when I was there in, uh, tw in 2010. It's when they published the first book and kind of global study on what what they were looking into is what makes life worthwhile, which like that was the that was like the big question that they were trying to answer. And out of that research kind of came these five areas of well-being, um, which are career, or, you know, as they were defined then was career well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, physical well-being and community well-being. And that, you know, during that time, it was like, you know, I mean, people were kind of rolling their eyes at the idea of caring about all of those things within the workplace, right? And 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 now, and and I was constantly saying like, it's not just wellness, it's not just physical health, and and um, and, you know, and and uh, gym memberships, and it's not, you know, this is a more holistic conversation. Now people really get that, right? So I think we've like come a long way in that people are people understand that well-being is quality of life it's how you're really doing overall in life it's not just wellness so i've seen a massive change in that where people just get that now you know sometimes they still have to kind of talk about the difference but it seems like this idea of like you know people the whole person comes to work you know like people say you know that is that is like a that is a a understood you know that is now an understood understood thing. So so what continuously surprises you in the data story today, and also surprises your clients? You know, is it is it on the financial side? Is it on the mental well being side? What 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 pieces do you see in the data that just continue? Well, I mean. Wow. I think yeah, I mean, I think out. like, you know, recently just had a client, we're really surprised by how many people are in that, um, in that, uh, that uh, meant like really do it in the mental ill health category. So you have to be careful about if you're measuring, you know, mental health carefully, because the spectrum is, is, is wide. And that's part of the issue is that we talk about mental health all the time. And it means so many different things. There's real mental illness. And then there's aspects of, you know, mental ill health that are very correctable that have nothing to do with taking medications or whatever, and might have to do with the workplace and workplace stress. And so it's a very unique spectrum. So I have been surprised by how many people are really, really in that struggling category, but also surprised about the number of people who are like languishing that are in kind of that middle zone of just like not feeling any type of pep in their step from an engagement or purpose standpoint. Um, and that's that I think is another big kind of like across the board, like that's the that's the big question on companies' minds. Like, how do we really move people from just being in more of that satisfied bucket as the employees that are just showing up or that might be quiet quitting? Like, they're just, they're, they're just kind of there. And how do I move them into that category where they are really excited and really in, enjoying work, enjoying the people they're doing it with? And so, um, so I think, like, 
that's also pretty surprising is like kind of the number of people that are just kind of like sitting in in the middle there um and then i think maybe another another kind of surprising piece is just like how disper equally dispersed those categories still are at all levels right that like there are people that are struggling and facing the same level of of stress or mental ill health in the higher levels of the organization as in in the lower it opens people's eyes to like wow you know this is this isn't just like a millennial problem or a problem just for one particular job role it 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 uh, you know these these issues are across you know across the board now i mean you you know mentioned the financial well-being unfortunately i have seen you know many organizations omit that piece of the equation not wanting to ask those questions not that they're equipped to answer it. And I think that's really, I never advise, I always advise against, against that um, because it's, it, there's more that they can do than they think. And I, and I also know that people who are going to, I, you know, I'm also not a big fan of like perks and things, just dishing out things to, to employees without changing the culture first. But, but I think, you know, there are, and I'm not just saying this because you're a financial, you know, wellness, wellness platform, but I think that financial, the right financial wellness partner can go much, a much longer way than like a wellness dashboard and some of these other um, kind of more typical like perks that we see in the, in the wellness space. But um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, always just like surprised at, how kind of afraid organizations are to go there with the financial well-being. It's like you cannot thrive. You cannot thrive if money is on your mind and that you are really struggling. And you and that is tied to, you know, mental ill health, right? So if you really care about whether or not your your employees are doing well mentally, you you've got to get a sense of is that is that being driven by you know some kind of a financial conversation and like no employee thinks that their em employer needs to like double their salary overnight but awareness is the first part of it and there's also other ways that an employer can get involved to empower you know empower employees around their finances absolutely and, and I, i'm sh shocked at the day that's coming out around this where Literally, millennials are stressing, stressing, actively stressing yeah. about their finances almost oh, two wow. hours a day. We're in really kind of tumultuous times now. I mean, I think the U.S. economy is going to continue to sort of rewrite itself after the pandemic. That's going to take a while. Uh, you know, we'll kind of go up and down. It'll be tumultuous. Uh, and I think, you know, that's actually, we're ushering in times of automation and artificial intelligence. I think that's destabilizing. Mm -hmm a lot of people's yeah. comfort level. So where do you see wellness over the next five years evolving to sort of buttress against that, those externalities and, and that sort of just overall complications or tumultuous environment that the workforce will face? Well, I think it's just going to have to, like, it just makes it more, it makes it more needed in terms of understanding people because of all of those complexities, right? It just makes you have to really have just, you know, more of an understanding of like how, 
you know, if you, if you, when you, when you're measuring properly and you have the right kind of data in front of you, it makes it much easier to like, look at your team and be like, well, I should ask them a question about, you know, maybe this week I should have a conversation with all my employees about how they're thinking, you know, are they, are they, are they fearful about the economy? Right. Or are they, are they worried? Or maybe, you know, like, like what, how do they feel about their job security? Job insecurity is one of the biggest drivers of burnout and, and um, stress related ill health. Right. And that's, and we don't, you don't have to be in like the midst of a, an economic crisis to have job insecurity. People are often working under stress because if they just don't feel like they get the right approval from their boss or acknowledgement, they have this feeling of job insecurity all the time. Right. So like you said, with the onset of chat GBT and all these other things, like there's a lot on people's mind that, that, you know, is, is, is eroding their ability to be focused and engaged and productive. So, you know, I think as just the world kind of gets more complex or as we face, you know, uh, a, like an economic downturn, that only makes more of the case why just, you know, being in tune with your people and asking the right questions so that they don't like leave because they're panicking, right? Because they're like, oh, I got to get out of the job. Maybe I have to jump into like, a different industry or I have to do, or, oh, my manager gave me like, was harsh on me this week. So now I'm all, now I think I'm going to get fired. So now they start job searching or they, they start doing something or they, or they retreat back. When those kinds of things happen, right, when an employee starts to give up and kind of, and go, you know, either leaves the organization or starts to just maybe not show up as much, or they're just putting their head down. Those are all of that, like, you know, contracts their potential and reduces their ability to produce results, right? Which is why this is all so important because when you've got people that are feeling suffocated, that are feeling scared of what's to come, that are feeling like they they just don't have the answers, that diminishes their ability to be coming up with ideas, being innovative, you know, being productive, proactive, and that's what reduces the, you know, the, the performance of the company. So long story short, I feel like just as things get more complex, as more and more, there's more and more external factors influencing people's lives, the more interested we have to get in what's going on with them. Well, I, I know you've been working on this uh, both challenge and extraordinary opportunity with Deepak Chopra over what, I guess over the past decade. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. And it's my understanding that you have a retreat coming up this oh, fall yeah. with him. And, and I would be interested to hear about that and maybe uh, share some of that information. Yeah, I would love listeners. to. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, so I actually met Deepak when I was at Gallup. I was, uh, I was a liaison for the well-being research to him because I wanted to, I really wanted to get this research out to the world more and have more leaders taking it seriously. So that was kind of where my relationship with him began. And, and I think, um, you know, I think he just, he kind of realized that I was pretty, I was, <laughs> was pretty, you know, set on this, you know, from an early age is this like being, you know, I was super passionate about it. I don't think I left him alone. Like I was just kind of always bothering him about how we should talk about this stuff and why it's so important. And so that kind of led to um, a long, you know, relationship now where he's 
he's mentored me personally, but then we, um, we've spoken publicly quite a few times and we actually developed a course back in 2016, which now this retreat is kind of an evolution of that. And what we did in 2016 was we, we, we led this kind of one, we called it a course, but it was like a one day event that was called workplace well-being and the soul of leadership. And basically the idea of it was that to be a conscious leader meant to, you know, actually get in touch with your purpose as a leader first and to really think about what does it mean to be a leader, you know, and that being a leader is a, a, a privilege and that you are influencing many people's lives and that in order to get to that level of thought, you kind of had to get in touch with your soul, the soul of leadership. Like, what is it, you know, not just what is your brain and your mind's, you know, telling you, but like when you just kind of really quiet your thinking and, and get in touch with that deeper part of yourself, what are, what kind of answers arise? And then that kind of, you know, transitioned into the workplace well-being domain because we took leaders through a process of, of answering some of those questions. And then we said, okay, now if you're really being a leader because, you know, you're here to make a difference in the lives of those that you lead, then you have to care about their well-being. So then workplace well-being was kind of like the next step in that process. And also a key part of that was caring about your own well-being, you know, showing your employees that you take care of yourself, that you prioritize it. So it gives them permission. And so then we went into, you know, then it kind of went into how do you make workplace well-being something in the culture. And, and so the retreat is basically that it's a three-day event. So we're having this three-day, um, it's three kind of core days of, of um, content and kind of workshops. And uh, it's on September, what is it? Six through six through nine. So yeah. Six, six, seventh and eighth um, of this year in California. And um, it's me, Deepak Chopra and um, Jeff McDonald, who's a former global um, head of HR for Unilever. So, um, so in the. Do you, do you still have space available at the retreat? If, if, if those yes, would like yeah. to come. We haven't even started marketing. Okay, well, it depends on when this, when this okay. airs, but we, we are actually just starting to market it, uh, this, this week, but it will be, it will be limited, um, seating cause we want it to be kind of an interactive thing, but yeah. So over three days, what we were promising is that you'll leave with a workplace well-being strategy in hand, but it's an opportunity to kind of really get grounded in what your, what your leadership means. And we are, like I said before, we're encouraging beyond HR. It's not an HR event. It is a event for senior level professionals um and c-suite you know c-suite and the ceo included we're highly encouraging um any any uh any position within a, any leadership position attend well that's great so i'll just encourage our listeners to uh, reach out to you over linkedin and get further information uh this has just been a really really enriching conversation i i'm, I'm just compelled by the work that you've been doing and I, and I think it's not only needed, but I think it's providing the scaffolding for a lot of change in corporate oh, America. thank you. And so I've just really enjoyed oh, the conversation. Thanks. Same thank here. It's so always fun. Always fun chatting with you, Charles. Thank you.